Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to this episode of Tatter. Tatter is largely recorded and edited in the digital media studios at Bates College, access to which is something I am very grateful for. But I do want to say that the views expressed in each episode of Tatter are in no way official views of Bates College. With all that said, here's Tatter. Multiple cities in the U.S., including Minneapolis, San Francisco, and Portland, Maine, have adopted ranked-choice voting as a system of counting votes in municipal elections with more than two candidates in a single race. In 2016, Maine's voters approved the use of ranked-choice voting in party primaries, as well as statewide and federal elections, making it the first state to extend ranked-choice voting to such elections. But the state's Supreme Court issued a unanimous advisory opinion that the parts of the ranked-choice voting law applying to statewide elections, namely those for governor and state legislative seats, were unconstitutional. The legislature then passed a bill, which the governor allowed to become law without his signature, that would delay enactment of ranked-choice voting to give time to resolve the conflicts with the Constitution. On June 12th, voters will get to decide on a ballot question that, if it passes, would undo that delay. So, in essence, voters are again voting on whether to employ ranked-choice voting or not. As that vote approaches, and as other states consider ranked-choice voting, I spoke to two political scientists about some of the intended rewards, but also some of the risks of ranked-choice voting. That conversation is the basis of this episode, which is titled, Spoiled. I uh, moved to San Francisco about eight years ago, and I had never heard of ranked-choice voting or uh, very much at all. And That's Jason McDaniel, a political scientist at San Francisco State University. Suddenly, uh, I started studying it, and I've written several articles about it. Uh, and uh, so now I'm a ranked-choice voting guy, I guess. <laughs> And your PhD is from USC? Yes, uh, I studied uh, mayoral voting in mayoral elections in Los Angeles, um, where I had uh, uh, USC is in Los Angeles. And, and uh, so my interest is mayoral elections uh, in general and race, the, the effects of race in mayoral elections. So um, I am not a political scientist, uh, and I suspect that most of our listeners are not, are not political scientists. And so very, very briefly, let's get some background out of the way for them. If someone asked you what a spoiler effect is, what would your brief uh, explanation or description of that be? I have this idea that when there's sort of a, a candidate that it may not be favored, you know, probably not favored by a majority, and where the voting for the candidate's opponents, the other candidates, is more than a majority, right? But because of the electoral rules of plurality or what have you, that sort of third spoiler candidate, as it were, ends up winning the election because they get the most votes. I think that would be my definition of a spoiler candidate, though perhaps Jack has a more technically correct definition. As Jason just implied, there's a second person in the interview, and that is Jack Santucci, political scientist in D.C., with a Ph.D. from Georgetown. So the short way I would describe it is um, two or more candidates divide an ideologically like-minded group of voters that otherwise would have a majority, and then you end up with uh, a winner who is not majority supported. 
And for those of us in the state of Maine uh, who are not uh, Tea Party Republicans, we have for the last uh, several years said what can happen is Paul LePage. Uh, and so that is governor who in neither of his uh, successful elections carried a majority, but with an independent in the race. And in one year, the independent um, actually garnered more support than the Democratic nominee, but the independent and the Democrats split the anti-LePage vote and LePage managed to win. And that's led many people to advocate for ranked choice voting, which entails an instant runoff. Can either of you quickly describe what is involved in that for anyone uh, who doesn't know what that entails? Sure. Um, So the voter ranks candidates in order of preference, one, two, three, and so on. And uh, the first step is to count up the first choice votes. If nobody has a majority of those, we eliminate the last place candidate and reallocate that candidate's ballots to the next ranked picks on each. And that process repeats until someone has a majority of continuing ballots in the final round. And from the moment I heard about ranked choice voting, I think my introduction to it was in um, William Poundstone's book, uh, Gaming the Vote. From the moment I heard about ranked choice voting, I was excited about it. Uh, But then I came across some written testimony out of Kansas uh, from a member of the uh, ACLU. When I say member of the ACLU, I'm not giving him enough credit. This is actually the policy director of the American Civil Liberties Union of Kansas who proposed that ranked choice voting can depress uh, participation of some voters. Uh, So, for example, can lead low information voters to either opt out of voting uh, at all or if they do vote, uh, having more spoiled ballots. And uh, this secretary of uh, sorry, this ACLU member, again, policy director argued that this can also happen disproportionately among low-income voters of color. Uh, And I've seen reports out of uh, Minnesota as well. My friend Joanne Miller, who's a political scientist there, whom you may know or know of, co-authored a couple of op-eds with Lawrence Jacobs, uh, arguing for that possibility and citing data indicating lower levels of participation among uh, communities of color uh, and low-income residents. Uh, Jason, I want to throw it over to you first. What's your reaction to the suggestion that an impact, an effect of the use of ranked choice voting can be depressed participation um, among low uh, income voters or low information voters or voters of color? You know, I, I looked at that testimony and, and I actually, I couldn't find any citations, but I vaguely suspect they might have been referring to some of my own research. Um, and when I first encountered ranked choice voting, um, you know, I've been studying voting in urban and local elections, which are very low information uh, elections here in California, especially they're nonpartisan is, is the is the main reason for that. And our theories in political science tell us that when you have, you know, lower levels of information and when you have voters engage in a more complex process, it's going to have some potential uh, effects on the margins, especially on, you know, participation uh, that we might expect theoretically that there's going to be a decline in participation uh, by some members of the electorate. And, and we might expect then, especially then those that perhaps lower income, less education, uh, maybe language difficulties, those that are not quite as assimilated or, or, you know, into the electoral process, habitual voters, 
factors that when you require a more complex process and when you have a lot of, you know, low levels of information that we could expect some effects on the margins. And some of my research in San Francisco, where I went back into the history of San Francisco elections uh, um, and compared the pre-ranked choice voting to the post-ranked choice voting era, found some of that, um, especially in those kinds of precincts that you mentioned, those areas where a lot of more low information, low, uh, what I call less sophisticated voters uh, live. Um, and then there were some issues with that research. It wasn't definitive uh, by any means. I have new research that I'm working now that that compares citywide uh, uh, turnout. And so I look at turnout in mayoral elections in, in six, I think, six cities that uh, do ranked choice voting compared to about 150 cities that don't. And again, I find a decline overall in turnout after the adoption of uh, ranked choice voting. So I do think you know, that sort of the complexities of ranked choice voting for while people like you, as you said, you're excited by this idea of ranked choice voting. People like you and I, we're, you know, fairly well educated. We, we think about, you know, spoiler effects and, and these sorts of things. It doesn't necessarily make sense to us that, you know, this is a more complex process that people might not participate because of it. But the research that I, I, I the data that I keep finding and, and, and uh, uh, publishing uh, seems to show that there are some negative effects on the margins. So there are two, two issues here. One of them is turnout, and the other one is basically people making mistakes with the ballots. Yep. Uh, on the mistakes with the ballots, it seems intuitive that if you make the voting process more complex, people are going to get flustered and either just consciously bow out of races where they're faced with too many choice or, um, or just make mistakes on that ballot altogether. And that is a, that's a sort of a result that, as far as we can tell, holds across quote-unquote complex electoral system. So I think some of Jason's own work has shown how you get similar uh, difficulty with ballots in, say, an at, Jason could correct me on this, but like an at-large election, right, where let's say you're filling five seats and voters are required to vote for five, or ask to vote for five candidates. You start to see some of that there. Yeah, I mean, we, uh, me and a co-author, uh, Francis Neely, looked at this, and we looked at, you know, I think about 2 million votes over time, individual votes, and we found rates of errors. These are errors that, on the ballot, that disqualify a ballot from being counted, uh, were very high in ranked choice voting elections compared to those that are more of a simple choice between two candidates. Um, we couldn't say it definitively was caused by ranked choice voting, but it seems quite clear that the more complex, uh, um, you know, the, the, the voting process, the balloting process, we saw rates of errors that were incredibly high, uh, uh, comparable to like poorly designed ballots and incredibly, you know, uh, uh, multi-seat uh, elections uh, that are some of the highest we see. And in fact, in San Francisco, one election, we saw more disqualified ballots than the margin of victory by the eventual winning candidate. Um, and so I, that is something that I think is significant uh, that, you know, that we should, uh, those of us who are concerned about democracy and the outcome of elections should be concerned about. Jack, it sounded as if you also wanted to come back to the other uh, relevant process, which is participation. So if it's demonstrated empirically that turnout is lower on average after the introduction of instant, instant runoff or ranked choice voting, you know, that's, that's a result, right? That's fine. Uh, the question for me always becomes why. And this gets to maybe something I'll talk about later on about the adoption of these systems in the first place. These these systems tend to come into existence because there's been a fundamental change in the party system or 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 the organizational vehicles for mobilization in a place. 
so the question in my mind has always been, how do you separate the sort of effect of the institution from, for lack of a better term, for lack of a better word, collapse of a party system altogether? Um, that may be an extreme way to put it, but I think it communicates the point. And, you know, I think that is very important. And, and I would, you know, refer to something that you mentioned, you know, the Paula Page effect. Here in San Francisco, I think there was a lot of momentum to adopt ring choice voting after a very close election in 2003. And I think what happens is that some of the, the sort of elites, let's call them, you know, activists in a, in a, in a state or in a city uh, begin to see this as an alternative. Right. And they want to they want to they're disappointed with the outcome of a particular election and they think they're looking for a solution. And, and to me, this goes to over a century of history. You know, and Jack knows, you know, it's much more about this than I do, where people are trying to reform the electoral process so that the different outcomes will, will result. Yeah. Right? And what we see is that that's going to have trade offs. It's going to have negative consequences. Right. And there's very few people then that think about it in terms of, well, what about voters? And, you know, we've often make voting more difficult for people in this country, especially in cities, nonpartisan elections. I think ranked choice voting is a part of that history where people like us, you know, elect, you know, election reform nerds are like, this is great or this is bad. Let's talk about exhausted ballots and, and spoiler effects. But just in general, that idea of just making it slightly more complicated, um, I think, uh, you know, there's just some knock-on effects where people feel like, at the margins again, uh, this is just more complicated than it needs to be. And, and we know that ranking is a more cognitively complex process, right? That there, there's been research that shows that people uh, make different decisions when they're asked to make uh, a, a more complex decision. Ranking one or two or three or more candidates is harder than just choosing one. And so I think that gets at why this is happening. But as Jack clearly said um, there, we don't really know yet why. There hasn't been enough research done to show why turnout might decline uh, um, uh, in these kinds of elections. So back in December, I had the pleasure of talking to John Pfaff, who is the author of a book about uh, mass incarceration uh, titled uh, Locked In, The True Causes of Mass Incarceration and How to Achieve Real Reform. And one of the things that he describes in that book that uh, was news to me, at least, is that, well, the first thing is not news, and that is that uh, local prosecutors uh, who have immense uh, influence over who ends up uh, uh, in, in incarcerated. And keep in mind that blacks and Latinos, particularly males, are statistically overrepresented in incarcerated populations. Local prosecutors are elected by the county. But in a county like if you take Cook County, for example, which uh, is where Chicago is, the s- residents in the suburbs have historically uh, wielded uh, disproportionate influence over electoral outcomes relative to those in the uh, uh, urban core for re- reasons that would not be surprising. The suburbs are wealthier, often better educated, and those factors tend to correlate with higher levels of participation and election. And what that can lead to is an incentive for the prosecutor to be punitive uh, because the people in the suburbs, when they come into the city to work, they come into the city to go to a show, they feel safer as a consequence of uh, uh, heavier enforcement uh, and um, uh, actions in, in the courts, but it's not their, not their father, it's not their brother. 
And even though the incarcerated population in the U.S. is overwhelmingly male, there are women who are incarcerated, and the effects of incarceration ripple outward throughout the communities from which they come. So I should have added that it's not their mother, it's not their sister, it's not their son, not their daughter who is experiencing uh, the costs uh, of that heavy uh, enforcement. And so if I think about the potential for uh, an intended reform like uh, ranked choice voting to exacerbate differences between in, in turnout between communities of color and um, communities that are more predominantly white, it really gives me pause. But, but I wonder, do you think there are boundary conditions for these kinds of adverse effects? So for example, can uh, the adverse effects on uh, either turnout or uh, the spoil ballot rates be mitigated through education campaigns or by by limiting the number of candidates who can be ranked uh, in order to make it a little less complicated? So first off, I absolutely share, you know, your concern. I do think for me, the number one priority should be, you know, participation and equality of participation as high as possible, right? Now, that's not everybody else's priority value, but that's mine, right? I, yes. I study voter turnout in that regard. So I absolutely agree that you nail it on the head on what's at stake, right? In terms of boundary conditions, I think yes, but I actually think it's, it's you know, limiting the number of ranked candidates isn't, doesn't do much. Um, San Francisco only has three, you know, rankings. Uh, some jurisdictions, you know, allow you to rank as many spots as there are candidates, right? Um, I, San Francisco has also done a lot of education, uh, uh, you know, for this, uh, a lot of work that they did, especially when they was adopted to try to get people to understand what ranked choice voting is and how to do it. Uh, nonetheless, the effects are there. You know, when you poll people to use ranked choice voting, they, they express satisfaction with it. But again, that, that's sort of a self-selection issue in, in yeah. my mind, right? And so for me, it's about providing more information to the voters about the candidates, Right, we see uh, in a new article uh, Alva, uh, by Alvarez et al. and, and, and Jackson, the one that uh, uh, emailed that article to me, that voters are, are less likely to vote in what they call rational ways, uh, where they have less information in nonpartisan elections is, is the condition there. Where if they have party labels, and then we see this, I think, also in internationally in, in places that use a similar kind of voting, when there are clear party signals. Right. I think a lot of the so uh, negative effects that I find would be potentially mitigated, um, at, at least the, the turnout and participation effects. Right. And, and the problem is, I think a lot of electro- election reformers don't like parties. Their right. solution is almost never. Let's have more more clear party involvement in elections. And I think that's a problem. Right. So if you want ranked choice voting, it's going to be more complex. It requires maybe more information. I suspect if you have clear party labels, uh, you know, and perhaps a lot of work done on designing ballots, like a lot of work done on designing ballots uh, to make them as clear as possible. Those are the boundary conditions I would suggest. So why not, rather than switch to uh, ranked choice voting, so I'm thinking in the, in, here in Maine where uh, uh, there are, First past the post uh, pluralities where someone can, uh, in a three candidate race, be elected with just 39% of the vote. Rather than move to uh, an instant runoff with ranked choice voting, why not move to a traditional uh, runoff where a few weeks after the election, the top two candidates face off again? With that system, it would seem to avoid the complexity uh, that is added by the ranked choice ballot but still achieve the goal of 
uh, minimizing the likelihood of a spoiler effect. Yes, it will take more time. It will consume more financial resources. But setting those aside, am I, is my intuition wrong that the traditional runoff system would be a, a, a potentially effective at avoiding the uh, downsides we've discussed with ranked choice voting, but also avoiding spoiler effects? And this is not just some hypothetical academic exercise. There have been bills in the legislature that would do just that. They just haven't passed. What the standard ranked choice voting advocate would tell you is that uh, RCV is preferable on two counts. The first count is that when you move to that two-round election scenario, you often get a turnout differential between the first and the second rounds of the election. And David, David Kimball has looked at some of this stuff, another political scientist. Um, sometimes that turnout differential, you might argue, can swing the final outcome of an election. So ranked choice solves that problem by collapsing, quote-unquote, collapsing those two rounds into one. The second, the second thing that a, an RCV advocate would tell you is that um, ranked choice voting has a built-in mechanism for dealing with the sorts of coordination problems you're now seeing in California where, oh, geez, there are so many Democrats running in the first round that they're going to split each other's votes and we're going to end up with two Republicans in the final round when we could have had uh, you know, one Republican and one Democrat. And the, the logic of vote transfers that's built into ranked choice voting doesn't eliminate that problem, but it mitigates it. It's interesting because in San Francisco, that's what we had before ranked choice voting. We had the two round runoff scenario. And so when I'm, my results are comparing ranked choice voting to that, that scenario in nonpartisan elections. And, you know, when I first started studying this, I heard several arguments in favor of ranked choice voting. Um, the, the first one that I always heard was that it would bring more people into the, into the process and that runoff elections were always low turnouts and that you had, you know, sort of less legitimate outcomes because of that. But in fact, you know, turnout in three of the previous runoff, three of the four previous runoff elections before ranked choice voting were all higher. Turnout was higher than in the, than in the primary round, right? And so I, I don't think that's entirely legitimate uh, argument. Um, and so in that regard, yeah, I think perhaps a two-round runoff system is good. I also think that voters, those marginal voters we've been talking about, or those less sophisticated voters, those ones that are less habitual and less likely to turn out in every election, I actually think there's a campaign effect, a positive campaign effect, where that sort of intensified campaign between two candidates that make it into a runoff brings them into the process, right? It's a more money is spent. It's a simple choice, yes or no. Right. And, uh, you know, this person or that person, so to speak. And I think that has a, draws in sometimes draws in voters that did not participate in the first round and, and are not likely to participate when there's a lot of candidates. And so I think that's my response to that. I mean, that being said, you know, I, I don't want to always criticize, you know, ranked choice voting. I think there are some positive effects, at least in theory. And so, um, you know, I, I tend to think if we had party labels, maybe ranked choice voting would be okay. Uh, or uh, otherwise, I think in nonpartisan elections, I, you know, I tend to think um, maybe a two-round runoff is beneficial, but there's some problems with that as well. Uh, as you may or may not know, on this upcoming Tuesday, uh, Maine residents will be asked, among other things, to vote on a ballot question. And the context for that is, even though Maine's voters uh, endorsed the enactment of ranked choice voting, our legislature uh, recently approved a measure that would delay implementation of uh, ranked choice voting. We're using it in the primaries that are happening next Tuesday, 
But after then, it would not be used, I think, until 2021 to give the legislature a chance to resolve some possible conflict with the Constitution. On Tuesday, voters are being asked uh, to vote, and a yes vote would uh, overturn that law, and therefore it would undo that delay. So a yes vote is essentially a vote to say, we want to keep ranked choice voting even in our uh, general elections for governor, U.S. senator, U.S. representative, and a no vote uh, would sustain that legislative delay. So I went back to the Secretary of State's website, and I didn't quite get that right. Uh, apparently, a yes vote means that ranked choice voting would be used for primaries, so party primaries, and federal elections such as elections for U.S. Senate and U.S. Congress, because those elections are governed by statutes, not the Constitution. But even with a yes vote, plurality voting would still be used for statewide elections such as those for governor, state representative, and state senator, uh, because those elections, the rules for those are governed by the Constitution. In the event of a no vote, though, ranked choice voting would not be used at all unless the main Constitution is amended to allow it. It's a little confusing. Any bottom line advice to voters as they head in to decide on whether to vote yes, to uh, undo that delay and thus use ranked choice voting in the fall, or to vote no uh, to uh, allow that delay? I think, you know, that's, I, I wouldn't tell them how to vote, but the idea that when people do vote, that if they think this one change the electoral process is going to solve some problems that they're concerned about is probably not true. Right, it's probably exaggerated. Right, a lot of people will talk about, you know, ranked choice voting will help solve polarization, and that's an empirical question. I'm I'm doing some studying on that, and I don't think it's going to have much effect on that at all. Uh, um, you know, otherwise, it'll people will say, well, it'll make candidates campaign nicer. It'll it'll get rid of negative campaigning, and there's actually some evidence that might be, you know, there's some to reason to believe that, uh, but it's still a pretty minimal effect, I think. So, in general, just you know. Don't necessarily look to change to the electoral process to solve problems if you're dissatisfied with the current arrangement. Um, those things need to be studied, I think, and, and perhaps let's trust, you know, members of the legislature to do the studying and, and then and then maybe make a more informed decision. Jack, you get the last word. I would say uh, ask your favorite candidate what they think you should do. <laughs> there you go. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Jason McDaniel and Jack Santucci for taking the time to talk with me. And I also want to thank Seth Maskett for recommending them as guests. Check out the homepage for Tatter at tatter.fireside.fm where you can see links to more information about Jason and Jack. I also want to thank the Office of the Secretary of State of Maine for sharing information on previous legislative attempts at reform. Uh, at the website, you'll also be able to click a link to an FAQ page maintained by the Secretary of State with information on ranked choice voting in Maine. Finally, there will be a link on the page to information about William Poundstone's book, Gaming the Vote. Mainers, whatever your stance on ranked choice voting, be sure to vote on Tuesday, June 12th. And also be sure to follow Tatter on Twitter. That's at Tatter underscore rags. And stay tuned for ways that you can support this podcast. 
for now. Thanks for listening and be well.